Hello everyone and welcome back to Inking Out Loud. I'm your host Rob Santos and I'm joined as I always am by my co-host Drew McCaffrey. How's it going everybody? And returning is special guest Supreme Leader Jared Livingston. Hello. Have we already done that one? No, no, no. I've looked into it. I don't think I've done that one. <laughs> I don't think I've done that one. Last one was, uh, I don't remember what the last one was, but I remember the Dawn. That was my favorite. Or Galactic Emperor. I just remembered that one. Anyway. God, there was definitely a Galactic Emperor. Oh, hell yeah, there Someone's was. Someone's keeping for... track somewhere. <laughs> I actually yeah. have a list, believe it or not, somewhere. But uh, for episode 68, we're continuing on through our read of The Books of the North, Chronicles of the Black Company, Book 2, Shadows Linger, by Glenn Cook. Cook? It was such a mouthful, I almost got all the way through. Glenn Cook. Pardon me, everybody. Now, as we did for the first volume, we read through the whole book for our discussion this week. So now, we get to hear from Drew to get a recap of what the hell happened in this installment. Drew, fire away, man. Absolutely. So, this book takes place several years after the Battle of Charm. The Black Company is still working for the Lady. They have become her kind of right hand, her elite forces as she expands the borders of her empire. They are extremely efficient in taking out rebels and pacifying new, uh, you know, new territories. But one area the Lady's Empire has not quite reached yet is the far northwest, and that includes the city of Juniper. And Juniper is where Raven and Darling have settled down uh, since Raven deserted the Black Company at Charm and took Darling with him. They are living at a place called the Iron Lily, a super run-down, like, trashy inn run by a guy named Marin Shed. Uh, Raven is saving money to build a ship and, and continue his sort of uh, exile with Darling while he waits for, you know, the, the proper time for her to become the White Rose. But how he's making money is by selling bodies to these serpent kind of almost like the ale fin uh in the wheel of time these sort of snake people living in a black castle on the ridge above juniper little does he know the black castle is a portal to the barrel land where the dominator is trying to break out and the bodies are being used to help open the portal the lady is uh petitioned for help by the duke in juniper she sends the black company to go check it out along with a couple of the Taken. They figure out what's going on. The rest of the company arrives. Raven flees. There's a big battle at, uh, at the Black Castle where the lady slams the door on the, uh, on the Dominator. But the Taken are ready to turn on the company. So the surviving members of the Black Company flee to a city called Meadenville where they discover a second Black Castle, alert the lady of that presence, but also ambush and kill the limper. They flee from killing the limper, meet up with Darling, and find out that Raven, after faking his death once, has slipped in a public bath, <laughs> cracked his head on the, on the stone edge, and drowned. And we close, uh, you know, close the book on a scene with Darling, announcing that she is the White Rose, the company supporting her, and toasting to, what is it, the 27 years that they have to wait before the Great Comet? 29 years, that is right. Before the Great Comet comes around again. Okay. 
So, um, yeah. I'll kick us off with our style discussion and say that I was immediately <laughs> on board with the style changes that Cook made to this book, um, coming so soon out of its, pre its predecessor. Oh my god, I can't speak. It's predecessor. I was, uh, <laughs> instantly grabbed by the shorter chapters, which, you know, made the process of reading less taxing for me personally, um, more digestible, if I want to use that word, um, where I oh, gave yeah. up on the Black Company two separate times in the space of three years before reading page 20, the third time I made it through the entire book by, you know, just chugging through for this podcast. This time, though, with Shadows Linger on book two, I made it, I think, an entire, must have been an entire quarter of the way through the book before I put it down for the first time. So that'll give you an idea as to how much easier I found this book to read. What about you guys? Well, especially with Jared, since I know Drew's read this a lot. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. I mean, I think it helps that you're going into it knowing some of the background of this time around. <laughs> so you're not sitting oh, yeah. there just thinking, what the hell, I have no idea what's going on. Um, Even the, though the new... Juniper is so alien and completely new. <laughs> Besides that. Yeah. You know the characters. You know the purpose of the Black Company. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The the uh, certainly the shorter chapters are way better. I don't I don't know that I have a problem with like the chapter length necessarily, but like Rob said, it's more digestible. Bite sized pieces. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right? It no. it makes the book feel so much faster paced than the first one. Oh my god. Even though it is it is a little longer, but man, you just fly through it, and he does an excellent job with knowing when to cut away from either like you know the the croaker storyline or the marin shed raven storyline where like he's really good at not so much putting cliffhangers on chapters although there are some cliffhangers in there but just building the tension and the chapters are so small and so quick to read through that you you finish a chapter and you're like oh, i can't wait to get back to that and then you look and it's like halfway down the next page is when you're getting back to that character again because the chapters are so short and so you just like fly through it. I, I, I think it feels more action packed, even though it's not more action packed than the first one. <laughs> it feels that yeah, way that too. It definitely, it's, it definitely felt that way. Yeah. And and it, I think that comes down to what kind of book this is in relation to what kind of book the Black Company is, where the Black Company is more of like a, a, a an epic fantasy, right? You know, it's got the the grand armies moving across the continent and the big battles and all of that. And here, this is more of like, like a spy thriller for most of the book. You know, it's, it's all of this skullduggery and cloak and dagger stuff. And, and it's also much more an exploration of other characters outside of Croker. Mm. Particularly one, a lot more than I was expecting to have. Oh yeah. Yeah, I wasn't expecting a large focus to be on a non-company character. Yeah, no, uh -huh. I definitely thought he was going to... Especially considering how despicable he was at the very beginning. Oh, I figured yeah. Marin Shedd was a guy that what we were going to see die horrifically, probably by the halfway point. <laughs> I thought that was going to happen. <laughs> Boy, did I get my surprise, though. Wow, uh, he really, really pulled a fast one on us. Uh, Cook did 40 years ago, 30 years ago. This was 1984. Four. So this was 37, 36 years ago. Something yeah. like that. 
Um, I will say that I was pretty entertained, I suppose, with trying to, at least at first, trying to find the reason for the switching between the third-person limited and first-person omniscient delivery. For far, far too long before I realized it was simply the difference between Croker and Shed's viewpoints. Kind of smacked uh, myself about a third of the way book oh, really? on that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, it, was, it was definitely way too long to actually make that conclusion. I'm sort of ashamed I, of myself. I can't remember. Did you have the same issue uh, I did. reading Heroes I'm, Die? I, already, I yeah. already know exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, with, with Stover, I did have that exact same issue, too. I just, I, I guess, at, for some reason, when it comes to the actual point of view delivery, I'm just so close and so invested, I can't take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I just, it takes me way too long to pick up on these kinds of things. I think that says something for the storytelling. Sure, sure. You know, Both Stover they, and Cook so are engaged, masters. You know. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. I did miss some of the, you know, campaign traveling campaign style from the first one. Did you? I didn't. Yeah. Can't say mm. I did. <laughs> I was actually going to say like, maybe I, I missed the rest of the company. I don't know. Yeah, the the side characters in the company are not as present in this. Like this really is. I mean, you remember at the end of last episode when you said you'd love just, like, a book of Raven's life, and I was like, well, buckle up. <laughs> because oh. a, a good, you know, probably 50%, 60% of this book is just all about what the hell is Raven doing. Yeah, but it's not so. about Raven himself. It's about following Raven. We still don't get much yeah. at all from Raven, if any. Just for a couple no, chapters no. near the beginning. But you learn so much more about him. You, you kind of learn about his Doing motivations and, and his morality and what he's willing to do. What did we and, learn about this uh, one that we didn't learn about him in the first one? What did we learn about him? Yeah, like, what did we learn about him in Shadows Linger that we weren't already pretty confident in the Black uh, the The kind of depths that he's willing to go to in service of the light. Like, we, we get a, a real look at his moral compass here that we never got in the Black Company. Mm, okay, so how much is it... When you say service to the light, because what he was doing was it more very much the opposite. For, I think it's more caring for darling more it's than mostly for darling. Like, from at least from my point of view, I think so. Oh, it's, but it's because darling is the white rose, you know. Okay, I think I there's talk... one line toward the end where where Croker is musing on it, where like uh, he's talking about the. I think it's when he's he's checking out the Black Castle for the first time, and he talks about how uh, there are like moral poles that can show up in your life, and how the Black Castle is one of those, and Darling is another, and and that like when you are around the Black Castle, you want to be a better person because like in relation you want to like show that you're independent of it. And then sure. he muses on that and says, I wonder if Darling is a similar pole, but in the opposite way. Because the closer Raven got with Darling, the worse Raven himself acted. But it was all, like, in, in Raven's mind, like, to protect the White Rose. Hmm. Even though he was, like, actively helping the Dominator get out. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's, like, pulling him one way or the other. If he's just using it as a tool to help Darling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, and that's that's a central, I mean, a really central theme in this book is uh, is that sort of um, moral relativism and ends justifying means and redemption uh, through actions. You know, like, you're, you're kind of stuck with some questions at the end of this book. Was it worth it? Is it okay what Raven did? And then B, 
did Shed redeem himself? Hmm. Yeah, I want to talk more about Shed redeeming himself or the the potential <laughs> therefore um, when we get to his character. Though I do want to want to tackle on something that uh, that Jared had just previously mentioned though when he was saying that he sort of missed the world spanning soldiers life campaigning aspect of it in some ways i really didn't um i wrote down counter to the first book this one you know takes place entirely in what well for the most part for the vast majority of the book in one location juniper yeah um and we have one static mystery and that mystery is what the hell is happening with the black castle and those spooky creatures i loved cook's <laughs> careful flow of information about what's really happening in there the otherworldliness yeah. of that place and its denizens yeah it's creepy as hell but it's to me not quite as creepy as their apparent grasp of human nature. That really bothered me. Like uh, their manipulation of the greed of men and, and paying yeah. men for bodies. That was just uh, that was kind of I don't know. That was a little too human of them. If that makes any sense as to why they're creepier in that way. And um, the the super yeah. unsettling kind of realization that they make where they're like the only reason this didn't work for the dominator is because he chose juniper. He chose a place that has this like weird religion around dead bodies. But anywhere else, bodies would have been there would have been a freaking super highway to the castle's gate which, and a whole thriving economy on selling bodies. For me brings a question about the dominator himself, which I'm sure we, we might have the answer to in the future and I'm probably I'm just postulating. I'm thinking out loud is what I'm doing here. Uh, why wouldn't the Dominator have more awareness of the land? Has he just been imprisoned for that long? He doesn't have any kind of... His servants don't have any kind of thumb on the pulse of society where they're located because it seems like if, if, they're, if they're sentient and, and clever and devious and sinister enough to exploit the, the, the greed of men with coin, they wouldn't have realized what a big screw-up it would be to, to set up base there in Juniper with a religion like theirs? I just, I don't know. So I, I feel like this could what, be more revealed in the future, perhaps. What I figured what was going on there is that he wanted his Black Castle to, to pop up somewhere the lady wouldn't know oh, okay. about. Okay. So he chose just, like, the most remote place he could find. And because it was so remote, it was a place he didn't know about. He didn't have an intimate knowledge of the culture and religion and beliefs there. So yeah. it was like, you know, a, a, a two-edged sword there where on the one hand, yeah, he had how many dozens of years for this castle to grow uh, without the lady knowing about it. But on the other hand, he got stuck with a place where people don't want to sell bodies. <laughs> and we did have it revealed, you know, nearer to the end that he... The Dominator, of course, did in fact hedge his bets a little bit in that he has other plans. Late. Yes, he did. Yeah, which is very important, yes, I guess, in, in considering this point here. Um, I want to talk about Cook's writing of tension. I loved how many scenes we had where we were just kind of holding our breath. Um, there's a lot of examples after this one that I could have chosen, but I'm gonna, just going to use the first one that I wrote down and not include any more afterward. Um, chapter 7, Shed, when he's being worked over for money while Raven watches and he's trying to yeah. tell those who are taking money from him like look this is not my money this is Raven's money you really don't want to do this and what really kicked off that feeling and drove that point home for me was was when Darling entered the room and rather than looking simply concerned for her boss which I'm sure she was her primary reaction was to fearfully look towards Raven because in that no yeah. in that moment she knows what what we know. Raven is about to do something badass. Shit is about to go down. 
I thought it was cool. Yes. Yes. Tension. I mean, and, and Shed's entire storyline is full of moments like these. You know, where where there's a lot of dramatic irony going on. Yeah, that's my last point. Especially once he starts... Yeah, especially once he starts interacting with the Black Company. Mm-hmm. You know, when when he's talking with the Inquisitor and you're like, well, this is Croker. And, and knowing that Croker just sees right through him. And then, of course, you know, it, it cuts away from the scene and Croker goes and talks to the other Black Company guys. And they're, like, laughing about how obvious it was Shed was lying. And, like, you know, and so we we have this, this pretty consistent and uh, steepening slope of tension through Shed's uh, you know storyline and then there's that big release when Shed leaves when he flees during the fi- first big like kind of blow up around the black castle and you're like it's kind of your first deep breath in Shed's point of view but you only get like one chapter in Medenville before suddenly in an alley huh Baron Shed you know and he's <laughs> like Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. I would, I would ask though, is does that technically you know count as dramatic irony? Because the Black Company was on to Shed. They knew he was full of shit. Shed was the one unaware, but the the Black Company knew yeah. that he was lying, and the reader was with the Black Company at that point. See, for me, when I was about to discuss dramatic irony, what it was for me was how during these scenes, the Black Company was still unaware that Raven was involved, and it oh, wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't until. I think it was Shed. Must have been Shed that mentioned Raven's name. And and by the way, I was a little, I was slightly disappointed in the manner in which Glenn chose to break that particular bit of dramatic irony. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was Bullock. It was Bullock that mentioned Raven by name. I have it written down here. Um, mm-hmm. But what I was hoping to happen would be for Croker and Company. This is the scene I had set for myself. I thought Croker and Company were going to sit down for meals at the Iron Lily, and then Serving Girl arrives, and it's fucking darling. Like, I figured yeah. that would have been way more amusing. But still, you know, it was, it was worth coming. Yeah, I mean, so dramatic, it's it's dramatic irony both ways. Like, dramatic is irony is just when we as a character know something the, the or we as a reader know something the character doesn't. Right. So when Marin Shedd is sitting down to talk to the Inquisitor, the, okay, gotcha, yeah. that's dramatic irony because we know it's Croker, you know, sitting but, down and... And then we get the scene right after that where Croker's laughing about like yeah. how he's lying. I yeah. guess that depends on how obvious it was that it was Croker. See, for me, I didn't pick up on it being Croker until the end of the scene. Like, near the end of the scene, I was like, oh, wait, oh, my God. But if you have all the information necessary and all the context going in beforehand, I could see more dramatic irony being in there. Well, I mean, it's it's spelled out at the beginning of that scene because when, when like, the Inquisitor walks in, Shed thinks about it's how it's the guy who's been, like, poking around with Bullock. Oh really? Oh, I and we missed and that we line. know that. Yeah, yeah. I think he says it's like Bullock's sidekick or something wow. like that. Wow! I ended that scene yeah. like, oh, that was that was Croker, wasn't it? I'm like ninety percent sure of that. And then the next scene when they're talking about it, I was like, oh yeah, okay, duh. I I completely yeah. somehow missed that line where he was saying that he was the guy that's poking around with Bullock. Damn. Yeah, there's like a couple of points. Like there's uh, when when Bullock is poking around and Croker splits off. Croker goes into one in where like the people ask him if he's an inquisitor and he doesn't deny it. So we know that he's going around acting like he's an inquisitor. And so, you know, there, there's like the pieces there. Yeah. It's pieces um, you have to put together yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, just back on that, that kind of subject of tension that we were talking about. Mm. Uh, it, it, to me that culminated with Sue 
Okay. That that was like one of the most fraught chapters like Sue and Gilbert, I've ever you mean? read. Yeah, when, well when when he takes Sue to the castle. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That was that was that was a really low point for Mar and Shed. Probably the lowest point in this book. Yes, absolutely. Mm. But man was it harrowing. <laughs> yeah, harrowing it was. Uh <laughs> Jared, anything to tack on there before I I feel like as far as tension goes, a lot of the chapters ended with like one-liner kind of style sentences. Hmm. Yeah, I I could see it. Yeah, Yeah, and that kind of ties back to what I was saying earlier, where it's not quite cliffhangers that he does with his chapters, but he leaves you wanting more. Yeah, like it's it's almost sarcastic sometimes. I feel like. Oh yeah, well I mean Croker is so sarcastic. Yeah, it's that is like my favorite thing about reading this particular style is Croker's like snark coming through, you know, where <laughs> where he's just so dry, snark, and and, yeah. and like cynical and is a a master of understatement, you know. Like <laughs> I have a lot. I have something about Croker's sense of self awareness when we get to his character there for sure. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my last. Do we want to jump into characters. I just have one more style point here. Um, I want to talk, you know, at least, you know, gauge your guys' feelings on Cook's lack of, un, of, of explaining his magic system still at this point. Um, it goes a lot towards a point that, Drew, you kept making about these volumes. Like, they're, they're written for the soldiers. They're written about those on the front lines who often spend most of the exciting points in the book feeling helpless, lacking information, rather than commanding the battle and, and bringing us everywhere we need for the context. How do we feel about watching this battle from Croker's and Shed's point of view as the, the Taken and the Lady assault the castle and the Black Company assaults the castle, but all, all of our action is happening from ground level as we're watching the Taken fly over the sky and, and, and bomb the fortress and everything. The magic system, how do you guys feel about still, especially Jared, since he and I are brand new, how do you guys still feel about being kind of like in, you know, at sea there? I mean, I think it's what works with the entire style of the series so far. Right. That you're with these soldiers who have no idea what's going on with the magic system. I think it really works. It's realistic, right? Yeah, I mean, if you can count it as realistic in a magic system, hell yeah. That would be the closest thing we have. <laughs> realistic <I think>. magic <laughs> system, I should <Yeah>. say. <laughs> Drew? Yeah. Why is he so, explaining the magic? What's going on? Uh, or, uh, one, okay, I have to say one thing about the magic system. Okay, I think okay. the cheesiest thing that I just cannot get over is the references to, like, the flying carpets. And calling oh, God, it the carpet. thank you. Oh, my God. And I know he, like, you. goes out of his way at some point in this book to explain that it's, like, not literally a carpet. But Not just, at all. <laughs> I can't get that out of my head whenever they're talking about carpets flying around. <laughs> yep. I'm right. I, uh, I almost said Drew. Jared, I'm right there with you. I am 100% agree, in agreement with what you just said. So on the topic of the magic, yes. I want to I wanna kind of push back on one thing right away. Sure. Using the term magic system is wrong here. Okay. It's not a magic okay, system. Okay, fair. It's just fair. magic. It's just magic because we don't have a system to it. And this is it. one of those things. Yeah, like this is one of those things that the modern epic fantasy reader struggles with a lot going back and reading older fantasy. It's soft magic. There isn't a yeah. system to it. There isn't a logic. And it and the story isn't about that. It it doesn't matter because that's not like 
you know that's that's not what the story's about and uh what it is about is what rob you nailed you know and what jared you mentioned like how it's uh to take a line out of a, a future black company book it's about the soldiers being mushrooms kept in the dark and fed shit <laughs> that sounds almost like something stover would write that's amazing it, yeah uh, it, it's all about the soldiers struggling to survive. It's it's about the company, not the magic or or, or these you know the taken or the lady or the dominator. Well, I do just want to admit that's something that so. you prepared me for, Drew. It's not like an astute observation that I made on my with my own devices <laughs> at this point. You you were preparing me for that. You said this is what this series is about. Well, you said that a long time ago in, in earlier episodes, and I said okay, I can yeah. dig that. Uh, the military is something that has for a long time been very very. Uh, much of interest to me. In fact, I actually applied to the Navy when I was 18, but I didn't get in on health reasons. Um, oh. But, yeah, I don't think I even told you that, Drew. <laughs> I don't know if you know about no, that. No, I, I, I remember at one point you were, like, vaguely considering the Air Force, I think, but... I still uh, am. You still in are, fact, yeah. In fact, I may be <laughs> more than considering, but we'll we'll get past that. For yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so the... What the story is about is what Croker so effectively gets across. It is that feeling of smallness yeah. and that, that feeling of helplessness and and finding ways to help yourself despite that, you know, where the company is scrambling madly to keep their heads above water when all of the enemies arrayed against them are orders of magnitude more powerful. And I think that's one of the most clever things Cook did was not giving the company powerful wizards. That Goblin and One-Eye and Silent are minor wizards. Sure. You know, they're good with illusions and tricks, so they have to be smart so about how they use them. I, involved with these ones. I, yeah, I love how uh, so often they'll talk about how, like, we don't even want to use our wizards because in this situation it'll be obvious that it was sorcery, and we don't want the enemy to know we have wizards. That would, like, that's our trump card. And if they know it, then we just lost our, you know, our advantage. We just lost our, uh, our surprise. Yeah. So mm. they have to be clever. They have to be smart. And a lot of the time, not use the magic available to them. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty much set on my style discussion for now. I'm ready to jump into characters. How about you guys? Yeah, let's, let's do, do it. it. How do we start with anybody besides my man Croker? Right? But yeah, yeah. Drew, you nailed, first off, you nailed his age, which, not that I didn't expect you to, but I figured I'd write it down here when I recognized <laughs> the moment. He says, I wouldn't see 40 again. And then there's another yeah. point, a point later in the book where he mentally ages himself right around 40 at that exact point, too. So, yeah, it's concrete. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, when you count the 29-year, the uh, uh, you know, interval period, or at least the... Um, the waiting period for the next comet, that means he's going to be 69 when the next comet comes around. And the immature millennial nice. inside of me has to say, nice. I literally just did. <laughs> did you say that? Yeah. Oh, man. I didn't hear it. See, I have my headphones really, really oh. low right now. So I my, my own voice is drowning you guys out when I'm talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but yeah, no, the, that is one thing, you know, we got to talk about with Croker especially and, and the company in general is their ages. Uh, it's a big theme in this book where they're like, they're talking about like, I'm tired of this. I'm getting old. And we're at the beginning. I'm not as young as I once was. Yeah. Mm. You know, like it's, and, and 
we have that book ended where the beginning is where they're all thinking about how old they are and, and how much they're worn down. And then the end of the book is like, well, we got 29 years to wait. Like the we next got 29 a, years. We got to last 29 more years for the next comet to come around. Like, and so it, that permeates this whole book. The, this sense of aging in the company. And how little new blood there is. Hmm. Especially and because maybe, what... maybe the ending is exactly what they needed. You know, something new to believe in, presumably. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Oh, yeah. The, the company was stagnating for far too long. They were showing it, in my limited opinion. And and it hurt them, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, that they were working for the lady. They knew they were, you know, they're fighting on the side of the darkness, or one of the darknesses, and mm-hmm. and now they they don't have to square their moral compasses with, uh, you know, being mercenaries anymore. They they can just follow their moral compasses and fight for Darling. And I think Croker, especially when he, at the end of this book, and he has that. <clears throat> scene where he talks to the lady after all of this it's sort of like he's getting the monkey off his back yeah oh yeah Mm. and we really get to see like i think this is a counterpoint to the black company where you know there's that one particular uh scene that rob had such a problem with with the dream you know like and and how much uh implication excuse me implication there is that croaker really isn't a very good guy none of them are but here we're seeing them rebel against that where they are showing that like when it comes down to it most of the guys in the company are decent people at heart they want to be good people they just have felt locked into being mercenaries and and erasing morals from their uh you know consideration because they can't afford to and and trying to like place their honor and their morality in the code of the company rather than internalizing it. And here we get to see them, especially Croker, internalize it. And we see it with Marin Shedd, where he internalizes his his morality and chooses to claw his way back. To Instead of just accepting, I'm a coward, I'm a terrible person, which he could have so easily done, you know, he makes the hard decisions after a certain point, and Croker recognizes that, and Croker is touched by that. And Croker makes them bury Shed with yeah. honors, basically. Yeah, he was pretty uh, pretty harsh with Otto. He's like, quit your bitch and just start digging. Come on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, we, Drew, you mentioned uh, when, when talking about Croker during our style discussions, you, you brought up his sense of self-awareness. And I want to definitely touch on that since we're here now. Uh, I, I quoted Croker sometime in the first half of the book right here. I've got a quote from Croker. So let's go. Lately, I felt the burden of time more and more, all too often dwelling on everything I've missed. I can laugh at peasants in townies chained all their lives to a tiny corner of the earth while I roam its face and see its wonders. But when I go down, there will be no child to carry my name, no family to mourn me save my comrades, no one to remember, no one to raise a marker over my cold bit of ground. Though I have seen great events, I will leave no enduring accomplishment save these annals. Such conceit, writing my name, sorry, writing my own epitaph, disguised as company history. 
that one really, really struck a chord with me because that's a moment where where Croker is not just aware of himself, but he's speaking meta. He he's literally analyzing oh, yeah. the the annals as a whole and their um, the filter through which he is is presenting them. So I found that to be really, really quaint. I found that to be really appropriate, and I got you know I I kind of in that moment I guess indirectly felt myself become more invested in Croker as a character for that reason. I really yeah. like the moments of self-reflection from him in this mm. one. Yes. And Agreed. I think some of that is spearheaded by the fact that he's separated from the rest of the company. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe. He's only got a few members there and Juniper with him. Yeah. But even then, he's mostly working with Bullock. And he's the one who has to deal with Whisper. He feels pretty isolated at a lot of points in this book. Although I did notice that um, he definitely took... He was very, very efficient in taking charge and very um, very accomplished in taking charge, especially near the end of the book when they left Juniper. Um, mm -hmm. Croker was, was definitely, you know, as the senior sergeant in, or senior officer in command. I still don't know. What the hell is his rank? Uh, analyst. He's a physician. He, he, and so analyst yeah, is a rank for them in this He okay. kind of... It, but and it's like outside rank? of the normal commands. It is an officer's rank, but it's outside of the normal command structure. Okay. So it's like he's like he gets saluted, but he doesn't get more orders. information. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that kind of a thing. For um, the most part, like, unless they need it. Yeah. Like he outranks a sergeant, but he's not giving sergeants orders like that. Kind Nor of is he giving thing. lieutenant orders. I don't think. I'm don't so think curious, curious about Croker's backstory. I want to know some of their backstories. <laughs> Me too, I have to admit. I have to admit uh, a very, very uh, big inclination towards curiosity in that area as well. I think that's one of the things he does the best is is doling out little hints about the backstory when it's appropriate, but not getting mired in um, the attractiveness of those mysteries, where like he, he allows the current stories and, and character arcs to breathe while giving you little, little hints and mysteries to pick at, you know, especially with, uh, with the captain rest in peace and, uh, Raven mm. rest in I, peace. I, I have uh, a very big <laughs> issue with saying rest in peace on both of those names, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> but, yeah. but, uh, do you have any more points about Croker? No, 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 no. I, you know what? I, it's kind of a half point. It's not really a point. I just wanted to say it's moments <laughs> like these. When I say these, I refer to the, the moment that I just, the, the quote that I just read. Um, when, when he's showing his incredible cynicism, but also his sense of self-awareness. And I wanted to say it's moments like these that make me, or let me, I should say, let me trust Croker as a narrator. Because there's a, there's a certain uh, there's a there's always a question as to how much you trust the narrator you're given and more and more I'm growing to trust what he says and his his view on things because of his remarkable sense of self-awareness so Croker is is an awesome character in my eyes yeah and and I will say that is very much a thing to keep in mind it is how much you trust the narrators in this series yeah awesome. that, that is you know and I think it is a point in his uh, in his favor on his trustworthiness. Uh, what you just brought up, but also that the lady wanted him hmm. to yeah. record her story, to record Charm. She's like, I don't I don't know what's going to happen here. I just want an unvarnished account. I can trust you to do that. Yeah. I can trust you to record the truth. 
instead of letting if I lose the victors rewrite history. You know, I I'd, I'd actually I had considered and started writing down this point here in in this point being how much you trust a narrator as actually as a style discussion originally when I was writing down my notes for this, but I didn't think I was like I've got enough style points here. I think we've talked enough about style, <laughs> and I realize we might not have enough to really do that subject justice. But I do want to have a point at some episode in the in the future where we talk about this idea of how much we can trust a narrator and how much we're given to trust them. I do like that. What, idea do, as a, what do you mean by trust? Uh, whether like what? whether they're 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 filtering their uh, description of things or their honesty by how they want to portray themselves. Yeah, like so. For for instance, Jared, when you think about um, without spoiling anything for listeners who may not have you know read or listened to it, uh, Kvothe in the Kingkiller Chronicle, how much of his story is the truth? How much of it is exaggerated or underplayed? You know, how how much of it is is him being an unreliable narrator? Or even characters like Matt Coffin in The Wheel of Time. Again, not to spoil anything from The Wheel of Time in particular, mm -hmm. but moments where Matt clearly considers himself or, or argues against himself being a hero, despite the fact that yeah. he's very, very clearly being a hero. Matt Coffin is, is an example of a very unreliable narrator. I will say that's a different kind of unreliable sure. narrator. Sure, yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because the, you know, these, with like, with the Kingkiller Chronicle and with the Black Company and, for instance, with the Book of the New Sun, these are texts being written by characters in the world and so you have to question their veracity as an artifact of the world because these are people who may or may not be honest <laughs> yeah so Please. why is someone with such an evil disposition like the lady so interested in croaker I think this is okay. We we're gonna move off of Croker to the lady now. Can we? Oh do this? sure. I didn't have any points about the lady in particular, but I'm ready to talk about her. Oh, I do, and this okay. is exactly why because Jared just brought this up. What Croker sees in the lady, and what we kind of get to see more in this book, is that the lady has something inside her. She is not purely evil. She's more complicated than that, and. And her mercy and her almost friendliness, at least her interest in Croker, comes from that place. It's not, you know, like if she were truly just an all-powerful evil empress, she would give less than a crap about the guy who records the histories for one of her mercenary companies, right? But because she does have this at some level, an inner sense of what I see as honesty to her, she she feels the compulsion to be honest with Croker. She feels the compulsion to honestly record events. She doesn't tell Croker to, to you know, write about charm and skip over all the atrocities that she commits. She just tells him, write what happens. Be honest. There's this, this need for honesty somewhere in the lady. And I think that really comes out in these last chapters in Shadows Linger, where she keeps visiting him in the dreams and having conversations, where she's livid with him. But she's not vengeful. She's not vindictive. And she gets over her anger. And she, she treats him, you know, like an old pal almost, even though he is full on telling her, like, listen... I'm not doing what you want me to. Yeah, she like, still gives him the ultimatum, though. She's like, well, if you're not with me, you're does. against me. I've made that decision. 
It's like, oh, wow, she, okay. She does. But yeah, I guess I don't understand her motivations. Maybe I'm hoping we point. get more. More context oh, we for will, her motivations. We will, we will get more. Good. Uh, without spoiling anything. That's all I need to we know. We will get more about the lady. <laughs> Jared, uh, anything about the... Oh, sorry, Drew, were you done there? Uh, yeah, I was done on, on that point, yeah. On the lady? Like, uh, Jared, anything else you want to talk about with the lady? Nope. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, yeah, okay. I found the lady to be a, a, a worthy villain. Uh, I do want... Like, really, the only thing I wanted to say about her is that I hope she gets more context in the future. Drew, you just confirmed that for me. So I'm feeling even better. I don't want to say better because I, that would imply that I was not feeling as good about going into the White Rose as I was about Shadows Linger. I am really excited <laughs> to get into the White Rose and Drew just added another reason for it. Yeah. And I will so, say, like, the White Rose, you know, without spoiling anything, just you've seen the kind of the shift in style from yep. the, the Black Company to Shadows Linger and that generally continues. Uh, some years ago, I, I started working on a a literary essay about this series and how in my mind each of the books kind of focuses on a different aspect of warfare and where the first one was about like uh you know these these long drawn out campaigns and retreating strategic retreat is such a big part of what happens in the black company and here like i said it's it's more of like a spy espionage you know thriller type of story it, it goes into the, the underside of military intelligence, almost. The White Rose kind of tackles an, another side of warfare entirely. So we're going to keep seeing these shifts uh, where each book isn't necessarily going to feel exactly the same. It's the tone of the books that, uh, because they don't all feel the same, it's easy for me you know, to, to read through and keep up momentum because it doesn't get stale. It doesn't... You know, maybe without, you know, going too into detail, one of the big complaints about the Wheel of Time is how some of the middle books start to to kind of blend together for a lot of people. They, they feel a little stale. They feel a little dry. That doesn't really happen here because you don't, you don't get, like, stuck covering the same topics and the same plot lines over and over and over again. Mm. Um and, and we see that from the Black Company into Shadows Linger, and we'll see it again when we talk about the White Rose next week. Sweet. Should we talk about Shed? Baron Shed. We, we have to. We because are. this is yeah. the biggest Shed. one. Sorry. Should we talk about him now is what I should have said. Yes. Um, God, what a journey this guy had in this book. Like, we went from hating, at least I went, from hating him to being sickened by him to being outright disgusted by him to perhaps pitying him a little bit, to grudging respect, to concern, to finally <laughs> admiration through Croker's eyes. How'd you guys feel about his journey before I continue? I would agree precisely. With everything? Because I was a little hesitant on saying perhaps pitying him a little bit. I don't know about pity, but I think perhaps redemption. Redem yeah, okay, there you go. That might be, might be better. Drew? I know, I, yeah, definitely not. Okay, definitely not pity, because his problems are a direct result of him being an asshole. Or selfish. Yeah. yeah. Selfish, you know. Yeah. But he, yeah, he didn't really he, understand he what he's getting himself money. into. can't handle money. He has a problem with women. Of... Yeah. You know. Yeah, I think his character arc is 
spectacularly done. Just masterful, masterful work on the part of Glenn Cook. Um, in a lot of ways, oh no, that would be a spoiler. Um, he reminds me a lot of what I hope is the ultimate conclusion of a certain character in A Song of Ice and Fire. That he's going to follow a much more drawn out version of a similar character arc. The way Rob explained it where you know you you don't like him from the get-go you become disgusted by him you despise him and slowly slowly he gains that self-awareness and works to write his own path um, i want to guess what character that is from martin after this podcast is done i want to guess see yeah, if i yeah. can think of the one that you're thinking of remind me of that sure i will forget by the end of um, the sentence i think the other thing with shed is it feels natural like it's not forced in the writing not at all it's so smoothly done that every decision he makes logically follows based on his character and his past actions exactly it, there, or on his it, motivations yeah yeah he feels very consistent even though he's changing all the time which sounds weird yeah exactly and that's why it's so good it's so well done where it makes sense for him to do what he does even as the things he's doing are utterly nonsensical or utterly inhumane or whatever, because they, they make sense for Marin Shed. Hmm. And this is to me uh, where I think this book stands head and shoulders above many of the rest uh, in the series, certainly above the first book. It's the character development. It's the character work. There, it's, it's about more than just Croker and the plot here it's the plot is is almost like secondary you don't you don't even really know what the plot is until what like halfway through the book you know all you all you know is you're like you're invested somehow in this pos innkeeper in the ghetto and like and and you want to know what he's gonna do it's so well done. <laughs> so, like, like going on about his his uh, his his journey as a character. Like, I wanted to, I want to just elaborate a little bit and say I hated him immediately, as I'm sure you know I was supposed yeah. to by design. Um, you know, one particular sickening thought of his about Darling really did it. I can't believe I'm going to fucking quote this, but I'm going to do it right now. Momentarily, oh. Shed wondered if Raven was diddling her be a damn waste of fine woman flesh if he wasn't in this moment i wanted to throw up i'm like okay this broski's gonna die he's gonna die very very soon um, oh, yeah. he's he's utterly depraved he, he's, yeah uh, yeah and yeah. seeing how sickened i was by this guy at this point it's safe to say in hindsight that i was not expecting to have any amount of investment in his character by the end of this book but then we get to this point where where croker is extending his hand and saying welcome to the black company shed and I'm, and I'm thinking, why am I excited about this? Because I was a little excited about that. I was like, this guy's finally on a path where he's turning over a new leaf. He's consistently talking about how his motivations are changed. Although, interestingly, we never got back in his head as he was thinking about that. Uh, if he was just, for all we know, he could have been I... lying. Right? Oh, but, but you and I both know he wasn't. Well, he did show up on the road at the end there. They thought he wasn't going yeah. to. So I guess that, you know, actions yeah. speak louder than words, obviously, in this case. But and I was still expecting that maybe he was lying and we'll see him, we'll see him, you know, take off on them. But no, it turns out he was telling the truth. And I just, I had this real surreal moment during that, mo like, when, when Croker welcomes him to the Black Company. I thought, why, 
Why do I feel good about this when I hated this guy yesterday at this same time of day? Like, yeah. 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 I thought it was, it was also cool. a great counterpoint in that scene where Croker extends his hand in friendship and then Asa also wants to join and Croker kind of just laughs in his face because he knows Asa isn't genuine in the same way that Marin Shed <laughs> well it, was, it wasn't the same scene it was a few scenes later but yeah it was the same it was, it was the same offer and then Shed just like laughs and he's like are you kidding or no <laughs> I thought yeah, Asa just turned it down didn't he Croker? No, 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 no. He Asa said, "I don't really asks, care either way. You do if you want yeah, to." Yeah, Asa I'm asks not to protect you. join them, and, and Croker just laughs at him, basically. And Asa's like, "You know, I don't have anything left." You know, blah blah. blah. And Croker's like, "I don't care what you do. Come along with us. Don't come on, whatever. But you're not my responsibility. Like, yeah, I'm you're not, not part of the company. You. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah." What would you say was the first sort of light at the end of the tunnel that you got with Shed? Like, what was that moment where you realized, huh? Like, I might start rooting for this guy. Honestly, it was when he appeared on the road. <laughs> At the very end. <laughs> I was still very skeptical. Yeah, I was still fair. so skeptical of the guy just because of the decisions he's been making. But, you know, I was hoping. I was hoping long beforehand that he would. I think it was about the time when he was actively fight. He decided for the first time to take up weapon and fight back against the men. Um, I think they were Gilbert's men at that point. Although it's kind of hazy to me yesterday. I was very, very tired when i was reading this part of it um but the first time he decided to fight back and the first time he killed a man um i i had that's a weird it's a weird thing to say to follow that sentence but i i started to get hope for him in that in that moment but it wasn't until when he showed up on the road where i was like okay he is on the right path and he is doing the right thing and i officially approve of his journey <laughs> i i mean yeah. yes but that wasn't to me that wasn't the first glimpse of light so to speak I think the first one was when he flees Juniper, how he goes about it, how he makes sure that the people he's leaving behind are taken care of. Yeah, okay. When he, when and, he finds and, out that Juniper is destroyed, he's, his first thought is, my mother. You know. Uh, well, well, no, it's when he's actually yeah, like, leaving. And I, and I have the quote here. Oh? When, you know, the, the whole throwdown is going, going on. And he goes up to his rooms and he you know, stuffs all of his gold and silver in his pockets and grabs the amulet and he goes down and he runs into Sal. And she says, Marin, is it time? Yes, I'm leaving 20 leva in the box. You'll be fine as long as the soldiers keep coming in. And it goes on, you know, when will you be back? Maybe never. Certainly not before they pull out. He gave Sal a peck on the cheek. Take care. And don't short yourself for the kids. If Lisa turns up, tell her she's fired. If Wally does, tell him I forgive him. Mm -hmm. And that that line right there is, I think, the turning point because he's he's a piece of trash, lying in that line. Having killed both of them. Well, I mean, he didn't kill uh, Lisa, but he was more or less responsible for her getting taken away by the Taken. Um, You know, he she made her own decisions. Don't get me wrong. Lisa's also a terrible person. But but he killed Wally, and he's lying about both of them. He knows the truth, and he's lying about both of them. But in the same breath, take care, and don't short yourself for the kids. He he could be so easily selfish and say, you know what, I can't, I need all the money I can get. I, I, I can't trust that I'm going to land on my feet wherever I go. I need all the money I can get. I need all the help I can get. Instead, he says, you know what, no, I'm going to leave a veritable fortune behind 
for Sal to take care of, you know, the Iron Lily and her kids and for his mother. Like, he didn't have to do that. Shed earlier in the book wouldn't have done that. I think, but here, his mother. Like, I think it's this turning point. Yeah, he does always say this. I mean, I'm not from sure the start, because he, has this he was interesting relationship that you wouldn't expect <laughs> with his mother. He he really doesn't like his mother, and he does it out of a sense of duty. But we see when he like reaches his real depths, he neglects his mother. He stops paying. You know, you know, he's he's spending all of his money on Sue. He's, he stops paying for his mother's housekeepers. Yeah, but he, he doesn't realize he's rent. doing that. He's surprised by how much time has been when they come to collect. I well, but, that's but that's, the, that's the point, though. Mm, is that he, he's like so depraved at that point that it doesn't even cross his mind. You know, that, that's not on his radar of but, you know, priorities anymore. See, I would push back against that, though, and say every single time that he's told about disaster falling on the city, his first thought every single time was his mother. Every time after this, after this point, well, nothing, no, no disaster was falling on the point. city before that point, though. Exactly, but this is where where I'm saying this is the turning point. Okay, okay because maybe. before this was when he was neglecting his mother. Yeah, and then I mean, and there, then he, but there was neglect involved. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, and then and then he reaches his absolute nadir when he sells Sue, and then. You know, goes and kills Gilbert, and that's like the Gilbert thing is. Oh, Sue. You know, when, I was con- okay. Yeah. yeah, I was confusing Sue um, with Lisa. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, with Lisa. Oh, also yeah, yeah, some sorry. really, part... really disturbing scenes with Lisa. Um, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah, just a depraved guy. Uh, <laughs> yep. 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 But, but yeah, it, it, this is the start of that upward trend when when he he gains that awareness of how horrible he has been and makes that internal decision to start making reparations as he sees them of course there's you know the question remains is anything is are reparations even possible for what he did yeah <laughs> i See, mean I, that I, is I, one I, of the most disgusting things you could possibly do selling another human being into torture and death I don't yeah. think any change of character is justifiable unless it saves more lives than it costs. If he went on to like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save. He tallies up his losses, what the murders he's done. It's, I'm going to save. Well, I'm going to save. Like, that's the X. I'm going to save X plus one amount of lives. Okay, that's the salvation in my eyes. But that's just a philosophical. Does, does killing the limper save that many lives? You might. Oh, you. That's unquantifiable though, because you go, you don't know the future. Like, how many more when yeah. you've killed or saved? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, so. Are we done about Shed? Should we go on with? I would just a few say, others? yeah, Shed's one of the most fascinating characters that I've read in a while. Mm, I think yeah. I agree with that, just because of solely due to, I should say, actually, what Cook accomplished with this character in terms of introducing him and finishing with him. They are so, they are two completely different characters, despite the fact that they read the same. I don't, I don't know. It, it, Shed was, was an interesting read. And I hope we get more characters that interesting going forward. And and I just want to point out, he did all of that in in my my version of the book. He did all of that work on Shed in two hundred and twenty four pages. That is that is economy right there. How the hell did you calculate that? 
by looking at the fact that it started on page 224 and ended on 448. So even less but than there was, Surely there's really. Croker viewpoints in between there, though. Oh, well, yeah, I'm just saying the length of the book. Oh, okay. I thought you meant literally yeah. in Shed's page time. I was like, how the, did you seriously go oh, and count no, these no, chapters no, no, individually? No. I was, like, going to be taken aback there. Oh, my God. No, okay. and, and it's, gotcha, I mean, his, gotcha. his development You're extends right, beyond just his point of view chapters anyway. So. <laughs> okay, but, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I should have real clued in when you said 200 and some odd yeah, chapters. I was like, a, oh, yeah, that's the length of this book. This is a short book, and, and we had a, a compelling, complete, fascinating character arc from start to finish in yeah from one of the one characters of the shortest involved. fantasy books That's amazing you know most people are going to read like a 220 page epic fantasy book hell yeah Those don't come around very often cool like <laughs> uh i have two characters left that i want to discuss mm-hmm. they are as follows the lieutenant and the captain okay um so i'll start with the lieutenant i'll say he had a surprising number of totally badass moments in this one uh, what immediately comes to mind, of course, is the f- the first fight between the Black Company and the creatures of the Black Castle. But where I, I, I really, really started to respect the guy a lot was during the Battle of the Black Castle itself, when the lieutenant mm-hmm. laid a siege strategy that worked. <laughs> he busted his yeah. ass, and he made it work. And in Croker, of course, that this might be colored a little bit by, by Croker's praise of the guy himself but croker is very complimentary of the, of the lieutenant in this scene and i i find myself nodding along with a lot of that i thought the lieutenant was a total badass for this book how about you guys oh i think it's funny you you point out how croker's complimentary of him in that scene because mm, like just is. two chapters earlier croker was actually denigrating him he was being like the lieutenant is just doing this because he can this is all going to be a waste the real battle is going to be with the magic and then when the battle actually you know breaks out and they need the lieutenant's siege weapons and, yeah. and strategies and ditches and croker's like huh maybe that was a good yeah. idea well like, we are pleasantly surprised <laughs> just as croker is and i think we had been predispositioned for that i love that how how cook managed to to make that work it was cool mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. isn't that really just another good example of soldiers in the company not necessarily having a great understanding of the magic that's actually involved it could yeah. be a result of that yeah. So I would and assume that people that. like the captain and lieutenant probably have a much better idea. Uh, maybe. They might have gotten some information from the Taken or from the lady, but I want to say one thing. I, I maybe should have mentioned it earlier when our, with our discussion about the magic, but I love, and I'm not really sure why, because I'm normally the person who's like, I want answers to everything. I love that they never explain the like glowing paintballs. That they throw out the castle. Every every time they happen, Croker's like, there's like no visible effect to these. I have no idea what they're doing. And then and then they just never get explained. And I oh, I thought that. you were talking about the eggs at first, but there was a very 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 visible effect. No, of the, those yeah the paint the fire okay. Yeah, yeah. There was like two like paint balls like connected by like strings. Oh, they connect like, on a tether. That's right. But they yeah, were yeah. huge, weren't they? I thought they were. T- yeah. they were massive. Yeah, and they, like, hit the castle wall and, like, spray paint up the castle oh, wall. Okay. And, like, you okay. don't know why. Croker's like, I guess it must have been doing something or they wouldn't yeah, yeah, have bothered. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I cool. love that. I love that. Mm. And then, of course, you get, you know, the, the really, the, the real fireworks, the the eggs that, that eat the castle. And then the lady has her, like, actinic lightning bolt that just carves it up. Yes, yes. Mm. I also want to know more about that in the future if we can. 
Yeah, okay. So, like Raven, very much like Raven for me, I don't believe the captain is truly dead at this point. Oh, um, you don't think either of them are dead? No, I don't think either of them are dead. I mean, well, let me say, I don't think the captain is dead. I'm going to be really fucking pissed off if Raven is dead. <laughs> okay. I guess that's how I want to make that distinction there. But, like, who knows what Croker thinks he saw. After all, like, didn't one of the men, for example, in Medenville, Medenville, whatever the hell the name of that town is, get glamoured into a pig by one eye or goblin? You can glamour a lot of things and a lot of people. I don't know. I'm not saying that's what I think happened, but it's we have to keep that in, you know, I'm keeping that um, in consideration as a possibility. <laughs> I am, however, aware that I'm probably displaying a very clear inability to accept characters are truly dead. <laughs> um, I think it's because I can only accept characters dying as has been conditioned in me by so many authors previously. <laughs> if said character leaves a sense of closure. And, and like, you know, as we learn of their death, I had no sense of closure with Raven's death. Uh, although we apparently witnessed the captains as he was going 150 miles an hour on the carpet hit a rock. and slam into the water. <laughs> um, the fact that they never recovered his body, number one, makes me suspicious. And number two, this is something I wrote down as I, as I'll put this here instead of later in my predictions. Wouldn't that be something if he turned up as one of the taken? But he didn't the captain any... or Raven? The, sorry, at this point I'm talking about the captain because I was talking about the, uh, never recovering. Well, he didn't have body. any magical abilities, so I don't know why he would be. Attacked. Oh, he needs a magical ability to become taken? That's not just endowed by the lady? No. Oh, I, wow. Yeah, okay. that's why they like. They kept talking about how, like, Feather and Journey are weak taken because they weren't, like, of that magnitude of sorcerer beforehand. Oh. Well, Whisper was the only my, one My brain who was. interpreted that as, oh, yeah, they have they already have a set amount of magical power and they can't be changed. I don't know. I thought, oh, wow, okay, I'm just learning this now. I had assumed that the act of making the Taken granted them powers. No, not as far wow, as Wow, okay. Big, big, big uh, misunderstanding on my part that I'm just learning ahead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, any other, other characters you guys want to discuss? Um, I mean, mine was Raven. Yeah, we got to talk about Raven Fuck. still. And I... Oh, yeah, okay. Okay, we'll talk more about Raven. You guys hit it off. I, oh, I mean, first of all, I do not accept that Raven is dead. There is no <laughs> way. There is absolutely no way. <laughs> That that was the ending. Not a chance. Even though Darling was left behind. Yeah, even though. Even more so? I don't know. There's just no way. Interesting. Okay. All right. I mean, it is hilarious. Like, what a way <laughs> to mean, go out. Kind <laughs> of? Like, I, I don't know. But I you love read the it way... Like, it's... I love the way Croker wrote it too. Like I, I might have to pull up the quote, um, if I can find it. I know it's like right at the end. Um, yeah, yeah. We did not find Raven. Raven had evaded reconciliation or confrontation with his old comrades by cheating his way out. Fate is a fickle bitch who dotes <laughs> on irony. After all he had been through, all he had done, all he had survived. The very morning the lieutenant arrived, Raven slipped on a wet marble diving platform at a public bath, split his head open, fell into the pool, and drowned. That is not <laughs> what happened. You know what? <laughs> Fuck. I'm, I may have just convinced myself of something that pisses me off like I had, had alluded to earlier. 
Oh, what what is this? Well, Raven being dead. I didn't. I said I didn't accept that being so. But it just occurred to me that these are being written in first person omniscient by what I presume to be a far future croaker. Or is it as it's happening? Oh well, uh, it's not omniscient. Croaker no? doesn't know everything. But he, it's okay. retrospective. It's like a diary, but yeah, but how far retrospective? Because that could be omniscient. Well, okay, not uh, omniscient. It, it depends. Most though. of the time. Um, most of the time it's fairly soon after uh like there there are points in the books where croaker like makes mention about like i was doing this and you know we were we were on the march for this amount of time and i didn't have any time to work on these annals so now that we're like chilling out i have some time to catch up on them he'll say things like that um he tries to be pretty good about it uh but there are definitely times where he doesn't get to write on them for like days or weeks afterward okay so I was about yeah. to say a lot of exactly what Jared just said and saying, I don't, and I wrote that down too, I don't begin to accept the first part of Raven being dead in any way. No I way. don't believe that at all. <laughs> um, I am okay. a little, uh, this is one of my predictions that I wrote down actually. I said, clearly Raven isn't dead. I mean, come on, no way. I, I don't know how Cook is going to salvage a second fake suicide in the space of half of one book. But I really, really expect that he will, because otherwise I'm going to be very, very <laughs> fucking angry with him by the end of the series. Um, you, you want more Raven? I No, I just don't accept that a character that important and that intriguing could just go out off screen unexpectedly <laughs> like that with no closure. It, I was what the fuck? Okay. I was, I was a hell no. I'm envisioning Cook <laughs> laughing as he writes this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Drew knows a little more why I'm oh, a little man. angry about this one too, but I don't want to spoil something. Are you thinking what I'm thinking of, Drew? Perhaps something that. Are you thinking oh, of a character in another series? Yes. Okay. All right. I I think I have an idea, but yeah, I, w- I won't bring it up. Um. <laughs> okay. We have to yeah, follow yeah, up yeah. on this <laughs> afterwards. But yeah, no, I, I was I was gonna say clearly Raven isn't dead. I was about to say everything that Drew that Drew that Jared just said. But it just occurred to me that this might be written far enough forward from that time that maybe Ravens, uh, 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 maybe Croker simply didn't know. Or maybe, <clears throat> you know, Raven is actually dead and he was writing this 30 years, 40 years in the future. I just Yeah, oh. I don't know exactly the time frame when this was written. God damn. Because now that I think on it if Raven wasn't really dead and he had a bigger part to play going forward, Croker at this point would be writing this in a slightly different tone or voice. So damn it. That kind of kills a little bit of that hope that I have that Raven is still alive. Well, it all depends on when he's writing. This. Exactly. It depends on that, which is why I asked that when I, as soon as it occurred to me, but damn it, I guess I'll have to <laughs> raffle. Won't I? Oh man. Nothing you, you will say will convince me. Yeah. I guess nothing Drew says. Because I know Rob kind of agrees. Nothing Drew says will convince me that he's actually dead. So when tells the you, first okay, well, page of the White out. Rose is like Raven's funeral pyre, you're going to be like, nope. <laughs> nope. Yeah, yes. Nope. So this is a shame. I'm I'll literally like, out loud going to say, nope. Croker's <laughs> doing like an in-depth like examination of Raven's dead body. And Jared's like, nope, uh-uh, don't believe it. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Man, that, that it's a contra. He must must be a real trickster. I mean, or or he somehow managed to move his soul into another body or some shit like that. Like, <laughs> I'm telling you, oh there's more shenanigans. There is. There's yeah, no way. There's no way that okay. that, that Cook had had secretly dangled 
Raven's yeah. <laughs> backstory at us that much without planning to bring him back in the future. There's no way that Raven's done. I will not accept that until it is proven fact in text, and then I will be pissed off. <laughs> so, I'll say that going okay. forward. Okay, well, we, uh, we'll see how that prediction pans out. Mm, um, good. <laughs> uh, do you have any more predictions, or do we want to... I do have, actually, kinda... um, oh, two more. Okay. Um, no, sorry, just one Love more. It. Just one more. Oh, wait, shit, and I kind of already made that prediction, too. We are going to learn, to our horror that members of the black company have been taken but you just just address the fact that they need to have magical abilities before oh oh yeah so i was gonna i was expecting that that the rate uh the raven listen to me the captain perhaps or elmo until the very few last pages one of those two was going to turn up as one oh of the i was so glad i was so glad when elmo rolled up so okay answer me this answer me this new taken were made in the last book who were, at the time, very, very clearly against the lady. Why suddenly the fealty? If they weren't granted those powers. Well, because they're, like, magically compelled to serve her. Okay. She she knows their true names. She, like, she knows... Like, she, she basically, like, deconstructed them to their cores and then rebuilt them. If you remember the scene when Whisper gets taken, yeah, Corker yeah, yeah. talks about how Whisper gets like killed and resurrected over and over and over again and tortured and all of this stuff and like broken down and rebuilt essentially. Oh, see, that's, so I, I like, kind of figured that rebuilding yeah. was augmenting her with abilities that were worthy of the taken, which is why she was so insignificant earlier. I was just I mean, kind of I think that. I think like the only real ability that I can think of that they get from it is that they can like commune with the lady. Mm-hmm. Like from wherever, yeah, telepathically. Okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I've actually but, forgotten yeah, that yeah. detail about how they had she had died again and again and again and had been reprogrammed for lack of a better well, doesn't, term. Wait, doesn't uh, don't a couple members of the Black Company communicate with her in such a fashion? They communicate with Soulcatcher. Um, they communicate oh, yeah, with Soulcatcher. Soul but it's not the same thing. Like they go into like seizures and and a trance because Soulcatcher is like invading their mind. Yeah, and they're talking about how nasty Whereas, it is. And when one wizard specifically says he doesn't doesn't envy the other because it's such an unpleasant experience. Yeah. Whereas like when the Taken commune with the lady, they kind of just like their eyes roll their eyes for back a second, like and then they're from back. Fucking Westeros. Yeah. 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 That kind of a thing. Like there, it's a different type of uh, telepathic communication. I'm swearing. That doesn't. I'm swearing a lot in these episodes, boys. Maybe we don't uh, censor you, these. You are. As like, you know, <laughs> following in our, our tradition of Stover and how we were just representing gritty material so we don't so we don't censor the cursing. This is a military I mean, this is, after all. This is nowhere near the level of your style. <laughs> it's not. Well, you know what? No. I rebel <laughs> against that. We are seeing some very, 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 very horrifying graphic shit. In this one, I mean, selling nothing like it here. Bodies, I don't what know. Are you talking about? In the first book, if we, we got we, to we, see we them torturing Sue, raped by soldiers, how do you? How is that nothing like? Yeah, Stover? but we don't get like a blow-by-blow description of it. Neither, we, neither do we in, in Stover. We just get like uh, against the glass pulsing with his breath. <laughs> uh, do you forget Kohlberg and his floor boss? Do you forget Tanelkoff going okay, into Kohlberg's that's different. lair? That's different. Like... I'm sorry, but watching uh, a floor get his damn it, I can't. Damn it, I can't... Can I spoil... I can't spoil that. So, Damn it. I just don't agree with that. Yeah. Oh, man. I... Oh. 
there's nothing that is not as bad as why as seeing what we saw in a few points of this book in in terms of children being abused like i don't know hard hard disagree because we don't really see her getting abused it's like one line where they're like there was a crowd of soldiers gathered around her raven shot one of them with an arrow and then it like and then it's the whole showdown thing in in stover we get like pages upon pages of graphic descriptions of really messed up things not this we only get a couple of sentences about this <laughs> i don't know i just i was i was more disturbed by stover far more disturbed by Stover. well no i can't say that mm -hmm. i was pretty mm -hmm. i was no i was pretty fucking disturbed by a few things i was reading in here especially again you you, you wow. referenced it earlier too with croaker's dream in the first book you know like three quarters of the way through that one i was just like i don't know man it's such it's a throwaway not... line though like it, that just you are. You're right. I, it's I treated throwaway as as opposed to the central point of a scene. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't considered it's not the it. worst I've read. Like gap cycle. There are some well, yeah. psychological wow. terrible we'll, things. We'll get to the gap cycle later. <laughs> God damn. You know, I Drew mean... and, and Pat keep warning me about the gap cycle, and 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 moments like this just keep making me go. Are you serious? Okay. All right. I think the I first... think gap cycle might take the cake for me. Yeah. Really? The first More three so books Stover? of the Have gap read... cycle. Yes. Jared, you yes. read Stover? Uh-huh. I don't and know Gap personally for me if if any one scene in the Gap Cycle is worse for me than the two Kohlberg scenes in Blade of Taishal, but as a whole, way worse. Way worse. Okay. Well, like, we're getting off on a huge The first three books place. of that, yeah. I am interested anyway, in answering this question in the future. <laughs> It all started based on cursing. Uh, yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is what we get. Because we're reading the grandfather of Grimdark right now. You know, this is the the foundational Grimdark or pseudo-Grimdark fantasy The seminal series. Grimdark. Yeah. It's, yeah, maybe we don't uh, censor this. Basically, what do you think? Uh, uh, we, we could probably get away with it. We'll Make it easier on Pat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but okay. Um. Anyway, I I have a few miscellaneous thoughts to get out of the way. If you guys don't have any more characters that you want to discuss. No, I have no more characters. Nope. Okay. Okay. So there's. I, I do want to say at this point that, that there is a very concerning trend that I'm noticing about these books. It's starting to freak me out a little bit. Um. I um. There are some things happening around Darling that sound to me very similar to something that I personally was planning to do in a series of my own. I won't say exactly oh. what that is, obviously, but I'll say enough to make it clear for anyone that who knows in the future may eventually find their way to reading my own work someday. It has something to do with what drew like a specific thing that drew mentioned last week when you, when you told me to keep an eye out for this and you said, keep an eye out on the emotions of the men around her. If what's going on there is anything close to what I think it is, then I may have a royal pain in the ass to deal with later <laughs> when it comes time to actually finish writing my own books that I may or may not write someday. Uh, myself, it's a mystery that I'm going to be hiding for four or five books, each of which is going to be, I think, longer than, than, the, than these ones. But there's the chance that I'm misinterpreting this, what's actually happening around Darling. Um, there's a chance that my own plans in the future are different enough that I'll be able to continue in good conscience. There's also the fact that these books are well over 30 years old by this point. And if, if my own books ever do at the moment get pub 
you know, published someday, it's not going to be something I'm going to be writing for as much as 20 years. But, oh my god, there are so many things that are very, very similar that are concerning me. There's another thing going on here. The bodies being used to open the portal in the Black Castle. I have something similar happening. Something very, very vital to the central magic system that I created for my books. Um, and then, so... I, I, there's one more thing. The White Rose. Okay. All right. I already had a character in a different series with that same name. I'm with not the title. <laughs> the Nightfallen. It's, it's my Nightfallen. Nothing trilogy. new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. This was her um, banner and everything. Like, I'll be changing that, no problem. It's got nothing really to do with a greater story, like the previous thing did. But goddamn, I was thinking, how many, as I was reading this book, I was like, how many of my ideas is Glenn Cook going to take and then manage to write them 40 <laughs> years earlier? Or am I just that unoriginal? Sorry, go ahead. So, I'm curious what you think is happening around Darling. Well, well, I, I want to I address specifically that point and mention, I didn't say look at the emotions. I, wanted, I said look at the reactions around her. And it's actually explained what I was hinting at in Shadows Linger. Oh, Darling shit. is a null. She yeah, she is a magical null. If you remember at the at Charm, when she was a six year old child, there was a sleep spell cast on the Black six. Company when they were trying 10. to. Or yeah, she may have been ten. I don't remember. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. She would have been ten by yeah, then. I think you're confusing yeah, her for Averin. At this point, no, Averin. Averin was also ten. Oh, what? Uh, when that oh, started. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, but she was she was like six when they found her, but she was like nine or ten by the time they got to Charm. Gotcha. Um, but but there was um, a sleep spell cast upon them, and it didn't work on her. And yep. she reached over and woke up Raven. Yep. And and here we get it explained when One Eye says, "She's a null." Um, you know, like a null point in the magic. You know. You, he says, Darling is the White Rose. Come on, Crooker, she's a deaf mute. One I observed, she's also a magical null point. Yeah. Eh? Magic won't work around her. We noticed that clean back at Charm. And if she follows true to her sort, the null will get stronger as she gets older. Yep. Talk about a good thing to have in your pocket when you're on the run from the lady in the take-in for 29 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. Okay, see... So... That makes me feel a lot better. So you said the reactions. When you said reactions, I thought you meant physical, like emotional, personal reactions of those in her presence. Yeah, I was trying to, to really obfuscate it so I wouldn't spoil Fuck. it for you guys. I may have just <laughs> fucking given away a lot more than I meant to about what I plan to do in the future. Then. So I'm <laughs> no, going to be going fine. through you're this fine. as you know uh, somebody <laughs> listening in the future for censoring purposes. And I may censor a lot of that. I'm sorry, Pat, in the future. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right all right um, uh, anyway anyway two more miscellaneous points here interesting use of onomatopoeia elmo's yeah. sword cleared its scabbard shang i hadn't heard that one before it's startling yeah, visceral one. i like that oh Pretty i cool. love it yeah um and i i just want to say i loved the way that cook decided to end this novel specifically with the word choice there as the company declares allegiance to the White Rose, Croker's final words are, I thought I detected the faintest hint of gold in the corner of my eye, felt the faintest hint of amusement. <laughs> so ominous, but so perfect. I just wanted to tip my hat there. I was like, God, that was, that was nice. Yeah. Well done. 
So I had only one kind of miscellaneous thing highlighted. Yep. Well, I had two, but one of them we won't be able to address for like six more books. Um, <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. But this this one quote, I I just loved it, and it tells you everything about like the the consideration you give Marin Shed early in this book. And this line says it all. There is no vengeance as terrible as the vengeance a coward plots in the dark of his heart. Love that line. Love that line. And that is when he has uh, discovered that Sue is Gilbert's whore. And he's wandering around town trying to think of what to do and oh my gosh that line does he think does he think of something that's for sure yeah yeah <laughs> that line really really holds true about two chapters later <laughs> yeah awesome awesome so do we have favorite three favorite scenes? scenes yes awesome i actually remembered I mean, this time boys believe it or not <laughs> very yeah good. that leads right into mine i don't know <laughs> Did yeah. you not remember it again? <laughs> uh, so it, for me, uh, do we care about order here, or is it just no? Not, uh, not. up to you. Up to Only you. if you want to state it in order like I do every time, but that's just because I'm a <laughs> pedantic fuck. Okay. <laughs> so one of them's when he takes Sue up to the castle. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how much more needs to be said on that. Um, ambush on the limber at the end, and then the siege on the castle when Feather dies. Yeah, yeah, okay. Fair enough. Very nice. Fair enough. Uh, Drew, do you want to go alternatingly back and forth this time again, as we normally do? Sure. Yeah. Okay, I'll start with my third favorite, the battle at the Black Castle in Juniper. I mean, it's kind of a cheap answer, but, um, I wanted to just, again, you know, consider just how alien and terrifying it is from Croker's perspective on the ground. You know, like like most books, most authors actually would have would have would have us in the minds of the Taken as they fly around and they wage devastating magical war on that fortress. But with right. Cook, we're on the ground the entire time, watching at a distance, no idea what's happening for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. So my third favorite is uh, maybe a weird one. It is the kind of give and take in Medenville between Croker and Marin Shed as they're both converging on the Black Castle out in in the woods where Raven died. And neither of them knows what they're going to find. And it ends with Marin Shed discovering it and then the hand falling on his shoulder and just Marin Shed as the final line, you know? And and the choice to, to have him only say Marin Shed this coming later, like just after Marin was walking at night in Medenville and he sees the the Black Castle snake creature dude and all he says is Marin Shed. And and you just like masterful tension in that scene. And then next chapter, Croker on the trail out there and he runs into Marin and he's the one who says it. And you're like, oh, you know, and... It just just really great work of point of view and, and building tension in that scene. Loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Uh, you know what? 
since you reminded me while you were talking there, I want to give one uh, honorable mention before I go into number two. And that honorable mention is the scene where we know the Black Company is about to find Marin Shedd doing what he's doing, caught red-handed after he sells his corpses. And he just gets stopped, and we get that one single line, I'll be damned, it's the innkeeper. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Like, awesome. But my second favorite scene is the scene where the Lieutenant, Elmo, and Croker fight the mysterious creatures for the first time. We got to see mm. the Black Company in action, completely surprised by a strange alien foe and still kicking its ass. Uh, the Lieutenant in this scene was particularly awesome. And I, I, I quoted oh, here, I yanked my blade free, poked around on my medical knowledge for a better killing point. Elmo kicked his victim in the chest to get his weapon free. The lieutenant had the best weapon in approach. He hacked another neck while we, those who had their blades in the first creature, that is, diddled around. So free, <laughs> so gritty. Yeah. I loved it immensely. Yeah, yeah. Well, my uh, my second favorite scene is uh, one Jared already mentioned, and that is the, the entire sequence of events with... Uh, Shed picking up Sue, bringing her up to the castle, right, sending her to her doom, and and most importantly the internal, just the insanity going on inside of Shed in his mind as all that is happening, as he's second guessing and, and triple guessing himself and like, and and warring his inner decency is trying to tell him this is wrong and his his anger his vengeance his cowardice is overwhelming that and and this psychological trauma that's not only happening to sue of course it's happening to sue but to shed as well like oof so good so well written yes yes and my, my final scene my favorite scene number one Croker's final respect shed in the annals of the Black Company as the man was buried alongside the others. This was, was all the more striking to me because it paired so perfectly with another moment that we just had beforehand and gives it wonderful context. Like I mentioned before, when Croker extends his hand and says, Welcome to the Black Company shed. I was thinking of that exact moment because it had just happened, of course, as I imagine most people do, when I read this scene with Croker's final respect to Shed and how Shed moved him as a person with his journey. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say again, I'm, I, I was not expecting to respect Shed in any fashion by the end of this book. I still don't think, I'm not entirely <laughs> prepared to say that I do, but I respect what he became. And so obviously does Croker, and I thought that was wonderful. So yeah, that was my fantasy. And, and you know... That's that's kind of that sentiment is the core of what inspired grim dark fantasy as we know it today. It's this this gray area where you have deeply deeply flawed people who do incredibly heroic things, and you're left as a reader to grapple with the question of, you know, is this character admirable or detestable? Can I respect them? Am I a bad person for wanting to respect them? You know, like things like that. You're left with these questions of morality, questions of intent, you know. So, but uh, my favorite scene in the book was the death of Crage. Was the running battle on the rooftops 
Wow. Where, sh- where Shed sheds his cowardice. And uh, and for the first <laughs> time on, in dude. his life, takes his destiny into his own hands. <laughs> I can't. Okay, I didn't realize sorry, it was finish. that funny. <laughs> no, I was exasperated. Continue. I will. I will oh, Rob, it. we can't hear you. Sorry, I just realized my headset was <laughs> muted there for a second. Oh, there you go. <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, I, I also I love... signed there. Yeah. Yeah, I, I loved the, just the, once again, the internal landscape, getting to see these changes building and evolving inside of Marin Shed. In case you can't tell, yeah, I freaking love that character arc. It is it is some of the best character writing I've ever read. Just a, a an incredible display of skill and, uh, you know, and understanding of humanity on the part of Glenn Cook. Hell yeah. Awesome. Are we prepared to go into the final draft then? Does that wrap up everything we have to say about the Black Company Book 2, Shadows Linger? I think it does. Yeah. Awesome. I'll start us off then with with, with our final draft because I have a, um, I don't want to say boring, well, it's a boring choice, but it's a very simple choice. And that was Smirnoff. Oh, I mean it. Okay. I, I mean it. I, I mean just Smirnoff. I had the triple distilled <laughs> standard cheap shit that you could buy. I had it mixed with cranberry juice, and it was delicious. All right. All right. Classic. Oh, man, that that classic reminds me of mixture. college. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure I have... I, I think I probably had this on, like, three or four episodes that I've been on, but it's the Four Peaks <laughs> uh, Peach Golden Ale. Uh, you've had it at least once, I think. At, I mean, at you, least. It, I think you had it maybe Shadow Rising when you were on. Um, maybe. Uh, it, it was one of those. Uh, it might have been Lord of Cast. It was one of those middle wheel of time books. But Shadow I, I Rising would have made remember... more sense with if I was trying to theme something. But I usually don't. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I do remember it though being like you know that tastes or sounds like it would taste really really good mm-hmm. yeah it's <laughs> you know, good it's, this is the time of year I mean it hit like 90 here in Fort Collins for the first time this year today I'm currently like sweating sitting here recording this because we can't hang have on a AC second on since it'll did you just fucking ruin... say 90 degrees Fahrenheit yes you it son of a bitch 91 degrees you son you dirty, <laughs> you dirty whore you know what it's been like up here it's been freezing. Uh, snow? Yeah. It's been freezing. We had a snowstorm three days ago. Yep. What the hell? <laughs> um, 90 sounds like a cool wave. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jared, Jared's in, in Arizona. Phoenix, right? where, yeah. At least in Arizona for sure. You're in Phoenix, right? <laughs> yeah. Gilbert. Yeah, it's outside oh. of Phoenix. <laughs> God damn. Oh. But yeah, that, that peach ale, that, that sounds very delicious. This is the time of year to be drinking that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's the one thing, like, Arizona, it's, you just don't think about stouts here that often, which are my favorite. No, you although know, when there... It's, when it's 105 out, you're like, eh, do I want, I want a stout? I don't know. Yeah, there is one uh, one very, very good brewery in Arizona. I, I think it's in Flagstaff. I might be wrong on that, but uh, I 
think it's in Flagstaff, called Wren House, like the bird, W-R-E-N. Wren House. Sounds familiar. And they, they make some killer, killer barrel-aged stouts and barley wines. So mm. Mm. i have to check that out. Yeah, next time they have a release, I'll, I'll make you go proxy for me, Jared. Oh, I would absolutely do that. <laughs> yeah, I right, think Four Peaks, Four Peaks is a, a pretty big one here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for, for our listeners, uh, my parents recently retired to Arizona, and my dad has been drinking a fair amount of Four Peaks. So Yeah. Nice. It, it comes highly recommended. Very nice. But uh, on, on my end, I am drinking a stout. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise. I know. Totally shocking. I never drink stouts. Um, but this is uh, a stout from the Lost Abbey in California. Uh, it's a stout I've never had before. And it is uh, not the best named beer I've ever brought in. But it's pretty good. It's called Serpent's Stout. Okay. Okay. I accept it. I accept it as a worthy entrance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The tradition lives on. The tradition. Yeah, I, is, I have is I have some really really good Broker beers for later uh, Black Company books, but it's been a little bit of a struggle getting these early ones, uh, especially on on the, the short notice because we're doing only like one a book a week. Um, you know, so I, I haven't had <laughs> as cruising. much time as normal past. to acquire bo- uh, beers <laughs> for these books, but. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see. I might be able to swing something fun for White Rose or Silver Spike. Might, might right. be able to. Might be able to do a little something. Okay. Cool. And, and, and on well, the subject of the White out. Rose, we're <laughs> going to be reading the entirety of the White Rose for next week. We are. We are going to be reading the entirety of the White Rose. Um, yeah, we're we're zooming along, uh, and then the week after that, we'll be reading the entirety of the Silver Spike before we head off into the Cosmere. So, uh, yeah. So excited. Ooh, wait, what's the first Cosmere? Can you uh, not say yet? Well, not the first of the, oh. of the Cosmere, but it's going to be yeah. the big Cosmere. We, we've already we've done, done... Elantris. Exactly, yeah. So for any listeners oh, who right. might be new or checking us out, um, <laughs> yeah, our, some of our earliest episodes. Yeah, some of our earliest episodes were on Elantris and Warbreaker. Jared was on the Elantris episodes. <laughs> Uh, that was episode one and two. Jared was on our first episode. It's just occurring to that me now. That was forever ago. I mean, that was so long ago. It was like July of um, 2019. So yeah. What? No, before then. That was like Elantris? February, wasn't it? The no, Elantris my God, episodes? that was like we recorded them on your birthday in. That's October right, October 27, 2018. <laughs> was the first episode. Oh my yeah. God. We've been doing this for too long, gentlemen. Listen to me oh, and my man. sage yeah, wisdom at 28 years old. Like, yeah, we're, we're, getting, we're getting deep in there. <laughs> I mean, this is this is what, episode 68? 68. Of the Inking Out Loud podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, like we said, next up is The White Rose, uh, the third book of the North in the Chronicles of the Black Company. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, you know, check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. All those proceeds go toward Pat, our sound engineer, and Danny, our artist. Uh, we're going to have some really cool art coming up. It sounds like uh, she's been talking about the ideas for Mistborn. Very excited to see those. 
but but also, you know, on Patreon, you can get access to our monthly bonus episodes. Uh, Rob and I post monthly short fiction. Uh, you know, we, we got a bunch of extra content there. Check us out, patreon.com slash thinkingoutloud. As always, I'm your host, Drew McCaffrey. With me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Yo. And our special guest, Jared Livingston. Great to be here. Supreme leader, Jared Livingston. (laughs) So, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye, everyone. See you guys.